Fear is primal, ancient, and essential for survival. Without fear, all creatures would be oblivious to danger. The absence of fear is the inability to assess risk, to assess and predict hazards before they come to bear. And when a hazard is revealed, our catalog of responses is reduced to only three, to fight, to flee, or to freeze. The crisis that we face is not purely ecological. It implicates all of our social structures, our systemic injustices, and our relationship to progress and exploitation. Around the world, the risks posed by the climate are distributed as unevenly as wealth and power of all kinds. There is no running from this problem, and inaction is no solution at all. So as we pause at the threshold of change, we may ask ourselves, what does it mean to fight for our future? Where will we find the courage? There are dragons lurking in every direction. And while you can't see their bodies, you can see their tracks. These are the dragons of climate inaction. Their habitat is in our minds. And this podcast is your field guide. Welcome to Chapter 5, Force Majeure. This is Scales of Change, a field guide to the dragons of climate inaction. Join us as we learn to spot them in the wild and discover how they can be disarmed. Produced by Future Ecologies on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanich peoples, with support from the University of Victoria. Hey, welcome back. I'm Mendel. And I'm Adam. And we're back with Professor Robert Gifford. Hello, world. If you've jumped into the deep end with this series, and you're not sure why on earth we're talking about dragons, you may want to pause this episode and listen to the introduction entitled A Theory of Change. Today, we're bringing you the dragons of perceived risk. The operative word there being perceived. The risks, real or imaginary, aren't themselves shaping decision-making. It's our assessment of the risks that makes all the difference. Yes, I became sensitive to the idea of risk when I was teaching consumer psychology from a green perspective, but a lot of decisions that consumers make or don't make is because they're afraid something won't work. Usually a product won't work. What if, it's not so much true now, but in the early days of electric cars, what if the battery doesn't work? Or what if I put solar panels on my house and then I decide to sell the house and I don't get the the repayment over seven years or whatever? So we named this genus Timor, which is just Latin for fear. These dragons are all of the different ways we might fear doing something and making our lives worse. Starting off, there's the fear of functional risk, which is that some kind of change you might make simply won't work as you need it to, or when you need it to. Electric vehicle range anxiety is a great example, and as an electric vehicle owner myself, I can definitely attest to that sinking feeling when you suddenly realize that you're gonna get stuck on an off-ramp and you have no juice left. 
things are getting better, but the risk is, is still there. And there's also financial risk, which is pretty straightforward. And that's simply that some investment that you make won't ever pay back that upfront cost. And that's a fear that we dealt with a little bit in chapter four, driving decisions. Some of the dragons of perceived risk are more subtle, like temporal risk, which is the fear that a different choice will waste your precious time. This is also sometimes referred to as opportunity cost. You know, one of the interesting myths that was uh, disproven by the geography students several years ago is uh, which, which is the fastest way to get from campus to downtown? So the, the standard default answer is driving. Hello. And, and so what they did is you, you have to leave your office here and be in an office down there. And by the time people walk to their car, find a parking place, bicyclists, and this is real. I mean, they did it. And the bicyclists were getting there faster. Which, if you're a cyclist, you probably already knew. But apparently, this was news to the motorists. So temporal risk is uh, a drag in it if you believe that taking your bike would take you longer. It's just not true. (laughs) And then there is the dragon of social risks, which is like, maybe your pro-climate behavior would mark you somehow as a hippie or a lycra-clad bicycle dork. You know, it actually helps. And it's comfortable. We love you just the way that you are, Mendel. Thank you. The dragon of social risks bears a resemblance to the dragon of social norms. But rather than just modeling our behavior on others, the dragon of social risk is rooted in anxiety. It's a fear of the consequences of nonconformity, which, you know, can be extreme in certain places and times. Like, for example, medieval England or middle school. And finally, there's the most basic risk. Timor injuria. The fear that our climate actions may bring us physical harm. Yeah, I mean, I always just use a very prosaic example of riding your bike can be dangerous. Uh, And I've broken my own arm twice, by the way, riding my bikes. I've taken a tumble or two off my bike over the years as well. No broken bones, fortunately, just bruised ego. Some, like Robert, would just brush themselves off and keep biking. But I know lots of folks who say they would ride their bike if they felt safer and more confident on the road. And that's totally understandable. You know what gives you more confidence? Lycra. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. In any case, I guess I I just tend to filter out any information suggesting that cycling could be dangerous. Which, again, is why this episode is about perceived risk. And clearly, our aversion to physical risk can be a huge motivator at both an individual and societal scale. In just the past few months, we've seen incredible mobilizations of people acting to avoid physical risk. On the one hand, there's the coronavirus, which forced us to establish entirely new ways of life once we recognized the very real threat to our personal health and the health of the community at large. So we hopped on Zoom to ask Robert why we've been able to adapt so quickly to COVID and why the response has been so different when it comes to the climate. Both COVID-19 and the climate are global issues. They're affecting people in Ecuador, Africa, Middle East, China, and uh, Europe and North America. So they're similar in that sense of being extremely important global issues. Uh, I think the obvious difference between them is that COVID is much more immediate happening right now 
and also will go away, uh, whereas the climate issue, as uh, Barack Obama said, is going to be the issue that defines the contours of the century. COVID is not going to define the contours of the 21st century. People will remember it, but its effects will stop pretty soon compared to the climate issues. Unsurprisingly, we tend to focus our concern on the most clear and present danger. In the longer term, climate is a huge risk, and it's, I should say, to our health too, but not as immediately as the virus is. And this is tied into the different risks that that we face. Uh, Most of us just walking to the grocery store aren't faced with being, you know, sort of hit in the face by the climate, but we are. Uh, actually afraid of little droplets hitting us in the face from the person walking next to us. So it's pretty hard in the short term to be uh, as concerned about the climate as about the COVID-19. And then, of course, more recently, we've seen incredible numbers of people who are willing to gamble, not only with COVID, but direct physical violence, in order to mitigate a whole other form of physical risk, protesting systemic police brutality, en masse. Which highlights the fact that risk tolerance is sort of like triage. We have to take some risks in order to alleviate others. Totally. And it's still an open question which of these massive societal changes are temporary and which will continue to be part of our lives. But we planned this episode before anyone had heard of shelter in place and long before George Floyd's death catalyzed a movement. So we wanted to bring you a story of how, for some people, confronting the climate crisis doesn't pose physical risks sometime in the distant future. It can be a matter of life and death right now. So please be advised, this episode will contain brief descriptions of violence and murder. This is a story about a person who faced down enormous risks to fight for the climate and, in the process, transformed herself into a literal force of nature. And to help tell it, we reached out to a friend and journalist, Sarah Sachs. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Sarah. Would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? Sure. I'm a freelance environmental journalist who covers the intersection of forests, food, and people, with a big focus on tropical rainforests like the Amazon. And today, she's taking us into the southern Ecuadorian Amazon, into Pastaza. Pastaza is a province in Ecuador. It's one of the most biodiverse places in the world and home to several indigenous peoples. I've been lucky to spend some time getting to know a leader and a land defender from one of these peoples or nations, the Sapara. Her name is Gloria Ushigua. Bueno, mi nombre es Gloria Ushigua. Yo soy pueblo Sapara de Asociación de Mujeres Sapara. La presidenta soy. My name is Gloria Ushigua. I am president of the Zapara Women's Association. Our work here is on climate change. What is happening right now is that the world of the Amazon is changing rapidly. Gloria has featured in several of Sarah's articles for Bustle Magazine and Mongabay News. Gloria, along with I think the rest of the world, is becoming really concerned with just how devastating the effects of climate change are going to be. And being on the front lines of ecosystem changes, indigenous folks generally know that better than most. 
There is no way to deal with it. There are hurricanes becoming stronger every year. More and more trees fall. It's dangerous. Our community is getting very concerned. Zapata territory is deep in the rainforest and completely inaccessible by road. Travel is done by canoes on these small rivers. Planes are really only used to go back and forth to the city. So for the Zapata, falling trees are a serious liability. So, Sarah, you referred to Gloria as a land defender. Could you break that term down for us? Sure, yeah. To put it simply, a land defender is an activist who resists resource extraction, pollution, or any activity that threatens their rights to use or access their land. Often those lands are important ecosystems like rainforests. Which is a a pretty dangerous gig, right? Absolutely. And especially so for Black and Indigenous people of color who disproportionately bear the brunt of extractivist projects around the world. The watchdog organization Global Witness has tallied more than 1,700 land defenders who have been murdered since the year 2000. And more than a third of those were Indigenous. So why do you think Gloria chose this for herself? How did she get started on this path? She's been active in her community since the death of her father, Manari Basushigwa, who was widely seen as the last Sapada shaman. So as Gloria tells it, just before he died, he told his sons and daughters, I had this vision and I dreamt that you children would go out into the world and fight for our rights as a people and fight for our rights to our territory. And so all of the children of Minati have this very, very strong sense of responsibility to their land and their culture and their people. Our community has 400,000 hectares. We want to maintain it without exploitation, without deforestation. No logging, no deforestation, no cattle. After the death of her father, Gloria started organizing and became more and more of a local leader. And in 2010, 2011, she made a couple of high-profile trips to the United States and formed her own group, the Association of Zapata Women. And since then, she's been really active in attending protests, going to the UN, and she's taken on an international role of being a spokesperson for the Zapata. And the Zapata? along with six other indigenous nations in Pastaza, are standing up to all of the usual suspects. Mining, logging, ranching, and especially petroleum interests in their ancestral territories. So since their new constitution in 2008, Ecuador has legally recognized the land rights of indigenous peoples, but the state still maintains a claim to everything beneath the surface, what they call the subsoil rights. In our territory, there is a lot of oil, and it has not been exploited yet. And in 2010, then-President Rafael Correa tried to make a deal with the world, basically saying, we have all of these proven oil reserves, but the world is telling us not to exploit it, and we won't if you pay us not to. Yeah, so this was when Ecuador essentially tried to crowdfund from other nation-states the billions of dollars that they could have made from the oil. Like, pay us so that we can afford to keep it in the ground and not destroy one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. They called it the Yasuni ITT initiative, and it was a groundbreaking proposal, kind of like the new Ecuadorian constitution before it. But unfortunately, 
other countries didn't exactly leap at the opportunity. Only a few hundred million dollars were pledged. So Ecuador scrapped the plan and decided to sell the oil after all. So they took development loans from China, with a promise to pay them back in barrels of crude oil. In Ecuadorian politics, and arguably politics all over the world, there is this strong divorce or disjuncture between what is said about the importance of protecting nature and then what actually goes on in the background. It's a timeless refrain. Enter the Land Defenders. In 2013, Gloria and over 100 other indigenous women walked from Puyo, the capital city of Pastaza, to Quito, the national capital, 250 kilometers away. They marched and demonstrated in front of the presidential office, protesting the new oil concessions and rallying international support for their cause. But not all the publicity was good. Gloria became the center of the smear attack from the government. They put her face on public television with journalists making fun of her and comparing her to a monkey and making all of these crude jokes about her clothing. It was all incredibly racist and condescending. <laughs> so first, the government put me on television. Rafael Correa put me on television. He said, look at this Indian, dressing like a clown. But the intimidation didn't stop there. The Ecuadorian government declared her a persona non grata and accused her of being a domestic terrorist. Correa can say whatever he wants. Afterwards, five bullets hit my house, and so I hid. Her home was attacked by rocks and drive-by shootings. At one point, she even fought off assailants who broke into her house and tear-gassed her. But what's incredible about Gloria is how she just doesn't seem to get phased by these threats. I wasn't afraid. Do you know why? It's like, if it were only about me, I would be afraid. Of course I would worry. But this fight is for everyone. So it seems like she has this ability to face this kind of danger, a level of physical risk that would seriously intimidate any of us under any circumstances. Part of that is probably just the kind of person that Gloria is. But it's also how she feels that she's part of something much bigger than just herself. It seems like for her, the more she's also interacted with other groups that are facing similar difficulties, the more she feels a solidarity towards this larger movement. Part of what makes Gloria such an incredible person and a phenomenal leader is her ability to make human connections, even across huge differences. So like, I've seen her talk to someone through four different translators from Quechua to Spanish to Bahasa to an indigenous Indonesian language. And somehow she still manages to learn to communicate the commonalities in their struggle and to motivate them in this beautiful, optimistic way. Because for Gloria, finding common ground with a global community is critical to her mission. The Sapara are the smallest indigenous nationality within Ecuador. Exactly. There's only 400 Zapata left, and they're spread out over 400,000 hectares in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And each community only has a dozen or a few dozen people that live there. Como Gloria, yo puedo hacer solo para mí. 
As Gloria, I could be just for myself, but then I would be afraid that no one will support me. Instead, this fight is for everyone, every person alive. We all need someone to support, someone to get out of jail. But in 2016, the threats to Gloria intensified. Things took a turn for the worse, and ultimately, it cost her something irreplaceable. The life of her sister-in-law. They were working together in the fields, in the chakras, as they call it, planting yucca, planting other crops, and Gloria had to leave to go to a conference in the States. And a day or so later, her sister-in-law is found dead in the fields. They killed my sister-in-law in the field. They did it after everyone had gone. Later that day, a lot of people were talking because they thought they had killed me. Frontline defenders and other people who know Gloria think that it was a case of mistaken identity. Already burdened with the loss of a loved one, Gloria would have to face the guilt of survivorship as well. Knowing that the murder of her sister-in-law was intended for her, her attackers would at least hope that, in her grief, she would abandon her fight. But instead of stepping back and being defeated, she doubles her resolve. And this is actually a really common thread that I've seen where there's often a point in which many of these indigenous leaders, especially if they're land defenders, come into the public gaze and often have very, very traumatic, violent experiences either to themselves or their loved ones. And it's interesting to me that very few then decide to step back and kind of step back into security. Instead, many of these leaders become way more radical, way more invested, and really step up to the plate. And for Gloria, stepping up to the plate meant doing whatever it took to block the oil concessions. Environmental disaster is not hypothetical in Ecuador. In the northern province of Sucumbios, decades of illegal dumping of crude oil and wastewater by Texaco, now Chevron, has been alleged to outweigh the Exxon Valdez spill by over 30 times. A class action lawsuit found Chevron responsible for $9.5 billion. As of today, they've paid nothing. And the lawyer who won the case had his passport seized and was put under house arrest in New York, a move which earned Chevron international condemnation for quote-unquote judicial harassment. So Gloria knew how serious it was to keep the oil in the ground in her territory, and she hatched a strategy. It so happens that the provincial capital, Puyo, is neighbored by the tiny town of Shell. Yes, that Shell. The town was founded by the Dutch oil company, who abandoned it to local resistance in 1948. Its surviving function is as a landing strip, providing access by airplane to the remote corners of Pastaza. Ecuador had just given the contract for the oil to China, and Gloria got wind that there was a plan to send a group of engineers and seismologists into her territory. And Gloria has friends in Shell, so she casually asks when the exploration team is planning to take off. I asked, when are they going to go? They told me tomorrow. What time? 10 o'clock. Then, we bought matches and a torch. And then, with a group of five other women, she hides down the runway. 
porque el avión prende nomás. Because the plane was leaving soon. It's important to note that these planes are really small. They're like five-seater Cessnas. They're tiny. You have to weigh yourself and everything you're taking on beforehand, and you have to calculate the exact amount of gas you need, and you can't mess it up. Otherwise, you are just stranded. They started loading everything in, and we got closer. So we were hidden below the plane. And as the plane is about to start going down the runway, Gloria and these women run up to it with these burning torches and stop the plane from taking off. Just as it was about to take off, boom, le entramos. Boom, we entered. No tenía puerta. It had no door. Boom, le entramos con fósforo. We jumped inside with the torches. Ah, capitán, que yo le dije, cállate vos, no es tu territorio, le dije para aterrizar allá. I said to the captain, shut up, this is not your territory. No es tuyo, yo voy a prender allá. Turn it off, now. And with that, she blocks the exploration team from Sapara territory. And this is only one of the many tools at her disposal. In her fight to prevent oil extraction, Gloria takes direct action on all sorts of different levels. She marches and demonstrates and mobilizes her global network. She just keeps the pressure on, and it works. At the end of 2019, the Chinese declare the Sapora and other indigenous resistance to be a force majeure, and they terminate their oil contract with Ecuador. Force majeure. An insurance clause, meaning an act of God, an unpreventable, unforeseeable circumstance. It's something that's usually reserved for earthquakes, hurricanes, and things beyond human control. The Chinese basically said, Sapara resistance to us drilling is simply too strong, and it's not worth it. And so they canceled the billion-dollar contract. Bueno, gané. I won. So today, Gloria is a legally recognized force of nature. She overcame public shaming, harassment, violence, and even attempted murder to protect her home. Exactly, yeah. Gloria is resolute that the Sapara are in control of their territory, that indigenous rights matter, and that the government may not override her rights in the name of resource extraction or development. So what does it mean to develop? To pollute? Is that development for you? I think at the core of it, Gloria has keyed into the links between her fight for indigenous land rights and the global movement to take action against climate change. To her, both problems share root cause of exploitation, injustice, and disconnection from the land. We don't handle money. We live from the land. We don't buy food. We go into the jungle. We pick fruit, we sow seeds, we take what we need. Her biggest goal is to simply protect her way of life and her culture, which has been sustained for thousands of years. In the future, the children growing up today will be able to have fun just like me. But they will see a lot of change. Risk is just a fact of life for all of us. But the dragons of inaction aren't really concerned with risk itself, rather our perception of it. Our actions are determined by our outlook, 
and we could all take a few lessons from Gloria. Perhaps the secret to being unshaken by the dragons of perceived risk is just to have a stronger perception of the reward, to take advantage of our selective memories. I had a chance to sit down in a cafe with both her and her close friend and colleague, Rosa. And at one point when Gloria got up to get a drink, Rosa was telling me about some of the sketchy situations that they've been in. For example, on the front lines protesting and facing off against the Ecuadorian army in full riot gear, or rushing the presidential building to demand an audience with Rafael Correa. And this is Ecuador and things get violent pretty quickly. For Rosa, who you might say is slightly more risk adverse, the element of danger is front and center and she's constantly worried about how Gloria could get hurt and lose an eye or worse. And in her telling of the story, a lot of it is focused around the physical danger. And then Gloria comes back, sits down, and starts to tell the exact same story of the protests. But as she tells it, things got intense, sure, and they were maybe a bit dangerous, but the focus is always on how amazing it felt to be there with everyone, right at the front, linking arms, standing up for what they believe in. And it seems almost difficult for Gloria to remember the risk when all she wants to remember is the adventure. Yo soy Gloria porque y siempre te digo siempre esta cosa no tengo miedo de luchar. I am Gloria and I am not afraid to fight for these things. Y terminar ganándolo. We will end up winning. I should clarify that this fight isn't over for Gloria. The threat of oil has definitely not gone away, it's just shifted. While the Ecuadorian state is now renegotiating or canceling its contracts with the Chinese, they've also had significant interest from the Argentinians and from the Chileans. But when I asked Gloria about it, she basically just laughed and said, oh, you know, if I can deal with the Chinese, I can definitely deal with the Chileans. They're basically just a boat right away. That is the fight of the Zapata people. And in the face of the biggest existential risk any of us have ever known, that is the fight of all people on Earth. From Pastaza to Standing Rock to Wet'suwet'en, land defenders are standing up to forces of violent displacement, which are in turn driven by our global addiction to fossil fuels. They do this because they are deeply connected to the land, because they want their children to grow up drinking clean water, and because they want to keep that carbon in the ground. Many of those on the front lines are indigenous, black, and brown. Historically, these communities have faced the worst pollution and dispossession. In other words, the greatest risk. It really shouldn't be a surprise that leaders from these communities are willing to accept the additional risks that come with being a vocal land defender. Increasingly, though, White people and settlers from all backgrounds are joining in these struggles. In some cases, in solidarity for justice, and in others, for a deep love and attachment to the very same lands and waters. We'll be discussing place attachment in the next chapter. But for now, I think it's worth asking, why has it taken so many of us so long to recognize that the tremendously unequal distribution of risk in our society puts us all at risk? in the long run? I think as we look forward, we face uh, conflicting risks. One is doing nothing or very little 
certainly has one kind of risk to ourselves and to the environment. But sometimes standing up for what we should be doing in the face of forces that don't want change to happen is another kind of risk. And so in some ways we're faced with a choice, uh, this risk or that risk, uh, risk to ourselves for not doing something, or maybe sometimes risk because we have done something. More and more of us are realizing that the risks of inaction outweigh the risks of action. As we face the climate crisis, the risks we take will range wildly, from things as prosaic as biking to work, to putting our lives at stake for what we believe in. But the more of us who take that risk together, the more of us who join hands, figuratively for the time being, the safer it will be for all of us. It will feel less like a leap of faith and more like an adventure. This has been chapter five of Scales of Change, a field guide to the dragons of climate inaction. We'll be back next week with chapter six, Relatives of the Deep. Scales of Change is a production of Future Ecologies with support from the University of Victoria. In this chapter, you heard Robert Gifford, Gloria Ushigwa, her interpreter, Claudia Cuesta, myself, Adam Huggins, me, Sarah Sachs, and me, Mendel Skolsky. Special thanks to Carolina Losa Leon. And thanks to Simone Miller, Susanna Hearn, and Anne McLaurin. Besides discovering the dragons of inaction, Robert Gifford is the author of the textbook, Environmental Psychology, Principles, and Practice. Sarah Sachs is a freelance environmental journalist. You can find her work at sarahlsachs.com. And Gloria Ushigwa is president of Ashinwaka, the Sapara Women's Association. You can read more about her in Sarah's piece in Bustle magazine or through the organization Frontline Defenders. Our theme song and composition for this chapter is by Loam Zoku. Other music in this episode was contributed by X-Ray, Blear Moon, Nukaka Yara, Krakatoa, Threes, Erez Sussman, and Lloyd Richards. You can tweet at us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Future Ecologies. To learn more about each one of the Dragons of Inaction, including silly things like the Latin names we gave them, go to futureecologies.net slash dragons. All right, that's it for this one. Bye for now. <laughs>